You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. I have kind of a love-hate relationship with politics. Uh, Probably shouldn't say a love-hate relationship. More like a passionate, disinterested relationship with politics. I'm passionate about politics in the sense that I'm I'm aware and I'm so thankful and grateful that I was born in the U.S. of A. I feel like globally I won the lottery by being born here. I have so much freedom. I'm thankful for that. And I know that our government plays a vital role in the life of how things happen here. But I'm also disinterested in the sense that I know that real change doesn't come about from the top down, but from the bottom up. And that when God works in people's hearts and lives, that brings about real change. It'll be reflected in our government and in our councils and in the highest office in the land, uh, even in the office of our president. And, and you know, it, it, a real good analogy of that is what we've done here at our church in the last three months. Uh, we made this change to go to two services. That's a decision we make at the top, and it affects how everything else happens. And if that was just a decision that was made at the top, and then nobody, their heart wasn't changed as a result, if we just welcome more people in to have a seat and hear me speak or hear us sing and God doesn't do a work in their hearts, that's worthless, right? The whole purpose of it is for more people to experience that life change that God's bringing about in them. And so I know that it's going to start at the bottom. So I have this kind of this passionate but also disinterested uh, view on politics. One of the things that I found extremely interesting over the last couple of months, last year really, is everyone's tried to have an idea of which Democrats are going to run uh, against our incumbent president, our current sitting president, President Trump. And every time that one of these people that people are kind of watching to see if they're going to run, every time they do a key speech or they introduce some key piece of legislation or they go and visit Iowa, people say, I think he's running. I think she's running, right? And, and they're always, people ask them constantly, are you running for president? And they like, oh, I don't, you know, probably not, or I don't know, I'm thinking about it, or they're trying to be spiritual, I'm praying about it. And they just kind of play coy until finally comes the time they've got all of their ducks in a row, they've got their committee put together, and they make the formal announcement with their paperwork being filed, yes, I'm running for president. Now imagine if one of those politicians, it, it, he did the exact opposite. What if he did the exact opposite? From the very beginning, he said, from the very beginning, I'm running. I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. And people kept asking him, hey, are you running for president? And he was like, yes, I'm running for president. I'm running for president. I'm seeking the nomination of my party. I'm going to run for president. And the next week, people are like, hey, are you going to run for president? And he's like, yes, I'm running. What happened to Jesus in his ministry was more similar to that. Jesus was constantly saying, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. In fact, at one point, Jesus stands up in a synagogue and he reads prophecy out of the book of Isaiah in front of everyone. He says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your presence. You are seeing this fulfilled. Jesus came preaching the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he's constantly saying, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. It wasn't something he was playing coy with. It wasn't something he was kind of dancing around. He was very clear from the very beginning that that's who he was and that was the reason that he came. But on Palm Sunday... This moment when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, it's like people finally got it. It's like they finally heard what he was saying. And a part of the reason was that Jesus is fulfilling another, yet another direct prophecy, but Jesus had raised Lazarus up from the dead. And so Jesus had done one of his greatest miracles, and now he's entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, a direct fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. In Palm Sunday... Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is just one of many formal announcements that Jesus made that he is the Son of God. But people finally started listening. 
But though they started listening and they started putting it together that he was the Son of God, they didn't quite understand yet. And that's what I want you to see in John chapter 12 today as we read this passage of Scripture together. And we'll have the words for you on the screen there. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also whom he had raised from the dead. So people were coming because they wanted to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. This was a big deal. It's one of his biggest miracles. Verse 10 is hilarious to me. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to to death. So the chief priests are this group of religious leaders, and they don't like how everyone is going to follow Jesus. And so when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they're like, we need to kill this guy. Like, really, you're going to kill the guy Jesus raised from the dead? You're just going to give him an opportunity to raise him from the dead again. But that, that, was, that was where they were at. They were so desperate, like, let's kill the guy that Jesus just raised from the dead. Verse 11. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. This is the motivation behind the chief priests, the elders, the ones that would eventually take Jesus, put him through a sham trial, and kill him. Verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, the feast being Passover, this huge gathering in Jerusalem, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, Blessed is the, what's that next word? The king, the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, found a a colt of a donkey, sat thereon as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. And so this is a direct fulfillment of that prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Now, Man, I feel like we're just kind of coming off the heels of this really heavy sermon series to start into Palm Sunday. It feels a little bit like whiplash for the things that we've been talking about over the last three weeks, and now we're going to look at Easter. Because last Sunday we had this guest speaker with us, and man, didn't he do an incredible job sharing his personal story? I mean, the song that he sang before he even shared his message had all of us crying, right? And then he shares his personal story about how God has delivered him from depression and PTSD that he suffered after this horrific attack. And, um, and guys, when I had lunch with him after the service last week, he, we got a little bit more of the picture. It's, just, it's incredible what God has done in his life. The week before that, we, we looked at anxiety, and that's one of the, the, the most prevalent forms of, of mental illness that's all around us. The week before that, we, we talked about suicide. But there's something that I want you to see as a consistent thread through all of those Sundays to today. On the Sunday that we talked about suicide, Mandy shared her testimony of how she had made it through the tragedy of losing her father and her nephew both to suicide. And do you remember what she said she does when things are dark and grim? That she gets out her guitar and she sings praises to God. The following Sunday, we talked about anxiety and we looked at this letter that Peter wrote to Christians who were suffering persecution. They're going through great difficulty and Peter encourages them by pointing out that God has done all of these wondrous things for them and made them a part of this great family of God, put them into this huge story of what he's doing and that they have reason to give God thanks in the midst of that. And then last week, James Bullock, our guest, gets up to speak. He sings a song entitled, Praise the Pain Away. And what we saw in all three of those messages is that praise is practical. That when we spend time giving God praise, that it lifts our spirits. 
that it takes the focus off of our brokenness and the circumstances that we currently find ourselves in and what it is that we're facing, and we see that God is great and he has the power over whatever it is that we are facing. And so when you are going through something difficult, when you're going through something that's heartrending, I encourage you that those are the moments that you need to praise God the most. Those are the moments that you need to spend time in praising God. It's practical. It's helpful. But we shouldn't just praise God because it helps us. Because praise is more than practical. Praise is appropriate. It's fitting. It's not only good for you, it's right for you to do. And in this moment, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, he's been saying, I am the king, I am the Messiah, I am the one that's fulfilling all of these prophecies. After he's raised Lazarus up from the dead, and he goes and he finds a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on so that he can once again directly fulfill this prophecy. If nobody had said something, it would have been out of place. It would have been a moment, like when you have one of those awkward moments. You know what those awkward moments are, right? Some of you have them all the time, right? You had one this morning when you got to church, right? You look at somebody, you don't really know what to say, right? And so there's just kind of this silence, and you're like, people do this to me all the time because I'm a preacher, right? Like, they find out I'm a preacher, and they're suddenly, they're like, I don't want to say anything because if I say anything, I'm probably going to say something I shouldn't say. In, in, in German, there's actually a word for the awkward pause, and it, it literally means a priest walked by. When, when, there's, when there's an awkward pause in conversation, the phrase they use is a priest walk by. Why did everybody get silent all of a sudden? Well, a priest must have walked by. <laughs> it would have been awkward if Jesus is riding in and nobody says anything. So much so, it would have been such a void, such a vacuum, that Jesus tells us that if, if they hadn't praised, that something would have, would have shouted. In Luke's, uh, Luke's testimony of this event, Luke tells us that there are some Pharisees, some of the religious leaders, the chief priests, they're not happy about what's happening. And so they actually tell Jesus, you need to rebuke your followers. And so Luke 19.39, he says, they said, will you tell your disciples, master, rebuke your disciples, tell them that they shouldn't be doing this. All right, we're going to show you that verse of scripture on the screen there. Tell, tell your disciples that they shouldn't be praising. And Jesus' response to them is, if they didn't praise, the stones would cry out. Jesus is saying, if these people weren't praising me in this moment, it would be such a vacuum, it would be such a void, that nature itself would cause praise to come out of the stones on the ground. Nature abhors a vacuum. Maybe you heard that in science class. Basically, it means that if you pump all of the air out of a cylinder, the pressure is going to crush that cylinder, or it's going to seek some way to fill that void. And it is appropriate and right for God to receive praise. And when he doesn't, it's not right and there's pressure. Something's got to fill that void. And friend, I want you to know that there's a place in your heart that only Jesus can fill. There's a place in your life that only the praise of God can fill. And you can try to fill that vacuum with all kinds of stuff. But until you find praise, it won't be filled with what it's supposed to be filled with. It's appropriate for us to praise. It's right. It's not just good. It is right for us to give God And so if you're living your life and you're not spending time in praising God, you're not living your life in an acknowledgement of who he is and what it is that he's done for us and the sacrifice that he's made, there is this void that's going to constantly feel empty. It's going to constantly feel awkward. It's going to constantly feel like there's something missing. And the truth is that's the reason that some of you are here today, because you recognize that something is missing and you need to fill that void. And I want to talk to you today about how you can feel that. Now, these people... They're praising God. They're praising Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. It's like they finally started to hear him. But I want you to see that they didn't really understand him yet. Because the next verse that we didn't read in John chapter 12, John chapter 12 and verse 16 says this. 
These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Now get a hold of that, okay? They realized, they recognized these things had been written about Jesus. So they begin to see that Jesus fits in all of these prophecies, all of these things that have been said about Jesus for all of eternity, all these things that have been happening. The Bible says that Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world. This is something that God has been at work in forever. And they finally start to see the big picture. They get a perspective. Once Jesus raises from the dead, they see it's not just about what he's going to do in our lifetime. It's not just what he's going to do right now in this situation. It's what he's been doing through the whole story of history. But they also begin to recognize the things that they had done. They were a part of this story, and they didn't even recognize it. Now, here's why I want you to understand that, okay? Because I think that it's a good possibility that you're here today, and you've come to church, and you recognize that it's important. You recognize that Palm Sunday is a big deal. You know that Easter Sunday is a big deal, and you better be here at church next Sunday, right? Because if you're not, Grandma is going to be upset, right? You're going to go to church on Easter Sunday and then go eat Grandma's Easter ham. Right? And we don't know why we eat Easter ham, but we do. We celebrate the resurrection of a Jew by eating pork, which they're not allowed to eat. But it's just what we do. <laughs> and here's what I think happens. I think that a lot of us celebrate holidays and we celebrate holy days. We don't really understand the significance of them. But we know that they're important. And the disciples, they're involved in this. And they can see that something is happening here. And this is special, but they don't really understand why. Because they don't know what it is that God is about to do. They know that he's the coming king or the coming Messiah, but they have missed how he's going to bring about this great ending to the story. And when we don't understand the how, we can't appreciate the what or the why. If you you don't understand how it is that God is working through this, you're not going to appreciate what it is that he has done and why he did it for us. And so I hope that this Palm Sunday I can help you see the the why, the how, and the what of Easter. The disciples are right in the middle of it. And they didn't, they didn't see it. And here's why. The disciples didn't see it because they had not yet experienced the resurrection. They hadn't seen Jesus raised from the dead. But when they saw that Jesus had raised from the dead, they had a completely different lens to look through everything else. When the disciples saw Jesus through the lens of his resurrection that he rose from the dead, they began to understand what it was he was all about. And when they did, they had a greater appreciation than ever before. Let me illustrate this with a story that I heard Tim Keller tell uh, some time ago, and I just thought it was great. Uh, Imagine that um, a lady is given a brooch by her great aunt. When her great aunt passes away, it's, it's passed down to her. And when she gets this brooch, she says, wow, this is, this is really nice. It's very pretty, but People don't really wear brooches anymore. It's not really in fashion anymore. And so I'm, I'm probably just going to, you know, I can't, I can't get rid of it because it's family, but I'm probably not going to wear it. And so she puts it in the drawer with her other jewelry, something that she has, and she knows there's something special about it, but she doesn't really appreciate it. And so when her daughter comes to her and asks if she can play with it, she says, sure, because it's not something that's really valuable to her. And then when soon enough, the daughter loses the brooch, because that's what kids do when they play with your stuff, right? They lose it. She's a little upset that her daughter is constantly losing things, but she's not going to turn the house upside down looking for it. And so it is missing for quite some time. 
months turn into years, and a couple years later, they buy the daughter a new bed, and when they do, they remove the bed from the room, and when they do, they see that the brooch has been up against the wall, pinned between the bed and the wall, and they pull it out, and they find it. And she says, oh, here it is, and she throws it back in that jewelry drawer. And she's recounting the story to a friend, and the friend starts to ask some questions about the brooch, and she says to her, she says, you know, you might want to have that thing checked out. It might be worth something. And so she takes it to a jeweler, and the jeweler gets out his jeweler's loop and looks at that little eyeglass, you know. And he looks at it, and he goes, hmm, interesting. And then he gasps, and he looks at it, and he says, this, this is not only a genuine, precious stone, but it's been crafted in a way that, that is almost a lost art, that people don't craft gems anymore. This is, is rare, not only in that it's a precious stone, but it's rare in the way that it's been cut and the way that it's been set. This is priceless. And the woman recognizes that the way that she's been treating this heirloom is out of appropriateness. It's not right because it's one of the most valuable things that she has. And it goes from being something that sits in the shelf and maybe they pull out every once so often or maybe they tell a story about it to it becomes something that she values and she wants to keep safe and she looks forward to the day that she could hand it down to her children and she tells all of her friends the story about this thing that she had and how truly valuable it is. And friend, I think that when you will take a close look at Jesus, when you'll take a close look at his life, when you understand what it is that he did for us and how he brought about this redemption for all mankind, you will realize it's the most valuable thing ever. It's the most valuable thing. And I am so excited to jump into the book of John after Easter and work through the whole story of Jesus' life as told by his best friend because I want you to get out the looking glass like that jeweler's loop and take a look at Jesus' life and see just how incredible he is. All the facets of his life, how precious it is. And if we'll realize what it is that Jesus is, what he stood for, what he taught, what he, what he did for us, we'll recognize how valuable, how meaningful, how significant this is. See, what the disciples didn't understand is they thought that Jesus had come to overthrow the Roman oppressive government. They thought that Jesus had come to do away with the corrupt religious system, the chief priests and the Pharisees that had overtaken their temple. And what they were doing is they were looking at Jesus' life and his ministry as something that was just for the here and now. And the truth is, that's where most of us are at. Most of us right now, what we're here for is we're hoping that Jesus can help us out of the mess that we're currently in. That he can fix the thing that we currently find ourselves in that he can fix the broken relationship that we currently find ourselves in. You know how I know this? Because I'm, as a pastor, I see people come with a broken situation, and they need Jesus in this moment, they need Jesus in this situation, and then somehow the circumstances, because they start to obey, and they start to experience some freedom and some grace, and the circumstance changes, and they leave, because they got what they needed. And we look for Jesus to fix this thing that we're facing right now. I want Jesus to make my check paycheck into the last to the end of the month and I want Jesus to fix my wife because she's the problem or fix my husband because he's the problem and if I can drag him to church I will so that Jesus can fix him and fix what's wrong in my life and the disciples are hoping that Jesus is going to fix what's broken in their society in that moment and that's not why Jesus came Jesus didn't come to fix 
what was broken in that moment, in that generation. Jesus came to fix what is broken in every generation. He came to take the brokenness, the very root of it, which is sin. Now, right now, it's spring, and so perhaps in your yard you've had some tulips or you've had some things pop up that you haven't seen in months. Because even though you mowed it over last year, that bulb, that root system is still there. And when springtime comes, it springs forward again. And sin is that in our lives. And if it's not dug up and dug out, if it's not conquered, it'll just constantly bring these effects, constantly bring these impacts into our lives, generation after generation after generation. And Jesus didn't come to fix the broken system of their temple or the broken system of the oppressive Roman government. He came to conquer sin for all generations. And when the disciples saw that Jesus conquered death and rose from the dead, they began to understand what it was that he was doing through the story of time. And they could look back and see with a new perspective all the things that they had been taught in synagogue school since they were children. They could look back and see that in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and death and hell and sin began to run its course through every story and every generation and God appears to them and tells them what their punishment is and then he says, but I will send a son and he will stomp on the head of the snake and he will crush the works of the devil under his heel, but his heel will be bruised. The disciples can see that Jesus is that son who has crushed the work of the devil and his heel was bruised on the cross and then he rose again victorious. They can look back and see that when God spoke to Abraham and said, through you I will bless all nations, I will bless all people. He wasn't just talking about Abraham's influence and his descendants and the Israelite nation and the Jewish people, but he was talking about the son who would come, one of the descendants of Abraham, and would conquer sin, which would be a blessing to all of us, even us white Anglo people here in the Midwest in 2019. When one of Abraham's descendants named Moses led all of Abraham's descendants out of the bondage of Egypt, and led them through the wilderness. And God spoke to Moses and said, you will worship me through these rituals, which were all about being clean, and all about having your sin forgiven. And whenever you're not clean, and whenever you don't have your sin forgiven, you will be separated from me. And so you will go through these rituals to be clean, and you will sacrifice lambs so that your sins can be forgiven. And then they can see that Jesus is that lamb that does it for everyone, for all time. And takes away that sin that has separated us from God. They could look back and see that when God spoke to Judah and said to Judah that one of your sons will be a king and his kingdom will never end. That he wasn't speaking about David, who was this powerful, great, mighty warrior, poet, king, but rather be speaking about Jesus, who would come and die on a cross, but raise victorious so that he will live forever. And David was a good king, but he wasn't eternal. He was mortal. And he was immoral. And he was imperfect. But Jesus is eternal, and he's moral, and he's perfect. And Jesus was able to fulfill every one of those promises that have been made to them all throughout the generations. And Jesus came to conquer the work of sin for every generation, and not just for the problems that are in your marriage this month, not just for the problems that are in your workplace, not just for the problems that are in our current governmental system, not just for the problems that are taking place in the persecuted church in China, not just for the problems in the third world where the Samburu people don't have any hard, hardly have any health care or water, not just for them, but for all people. 
And he's conquered sin so that we could all have freedom in him. And when we recognize what Jesus did, that was conquering sin for all generations, it's not just for this current situation, but for all of them, for all people, that's something to celebrate. That's a final, ultimate victory. But here's what I want you to see. That because of what Jesus has done, because He was willing to go to the cross, that it's appropriate to worship Him, I want you to see that it's only because of what Jesus did on the cross that we can worship Him. I want you to see that the cross makes worship possible. See, the disciples didn't understand all these things that were happening until Jesus died on the cross and then rose again. And they experienced the power of the Spirit in their lives and they began to share this good news all over the place. Why? Because the thing that had been separating them from God was removed and they had fellowship with God again. There's a man that's uh, retiring from ministry today. He's been a pastor in ministry for 50 years. And he was pastor to Nicole and I for just a very brief time, less than a year when we were in college. And I wish that I could be there today at his retirement to shake his hand and say thank you. But I can't because we're separated by this distance. I don't live near him. And I have things to do this morning. And so because of the separation of time and distance, I can't be there next to him and shake his hand. So I'll try to do the next best thing and send him a message. With the cross that is it removed what separated us from God. And what separates us from God is not time or distance, it's our sin. It's the things that we're engaged in that we know that we shouldn't be. It's the things that we do that break God's law. It's the commands that we know and we disobey. And it's the commands that we don't know and we don't care to know. Not only are we sinners because of the things that we do and the commandments that we break, we are sinners because... Scripture tells us that ever since Adam, it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. I'm a sinner by nature, not just by the things that I do. And so by very nature, as my broken, immoral, mortal person, is that I am separated from God by my sin. And what Jesus does on the cross is he takes away the sin. You see, all the people that are looking at Jesus as he's riding in on a donkey, and they're thinking, this is it. He's running. He's going to take this oppressive government away. He's going to fix what's broken in our corrupt religious system. He's going to make everything right. And Jesus said, no, I'm doing something bigger than that. I'm taking away the sin of all mankind. I'm going to be the hope of nations. And no king and no martyr and no teacher could do that. And while he had every right to be king and he had every right to the throne, he walked past it to the cross. He had every right to wear a crown of jewels and gold and silver, but he left that so that he could put on a crown of thorns and bleed on the cross. He walked up to the cross carrying the weight of my sin and your sin on his shoulders so that it could be removed from us so that we could be forgiven. And he removed the thing that separates us from God so that we have an opportunity to worship Him. And friend, i got to tell you that if you're here today and you have not experienced God freeing you from your sin, you've not experienced Christ's sacrifice making the final payment for your sin, I'm glad that you're here and you sing praises to God, but your sin is separating you from Him. And for your praise, to make it from your lips to God's ears, sin must be removed from the equation. When Jesus died on that cross, he was 
paying a cosmic spiritual debt that you and I could never pay. Most of you know what it's like to have debt, right? And you got debt because you can't pay off what you owe. And you're just paying the payment you can afford to make today. And you'll make the payment you can afford to pay next month. And the truth is that our debt because of our sin is so great that we can pay daily for eternity and never pay it off. So when Jesus died on the cross, he made a once and for all final ultimate payment for our sin. And removing that debt, removing that sin, gives us a relationship with him. And for that, he's worthy of praise. And because of that, we are able to praise him. Would you bow your head for a moment?